bishop would have known that by now it, it no longer seemed to matter where Robbie was. He was plagued whenever, wherever he went. Chances were that the case, as Bishop later called it, already had progressed from infestation to the next stage, obsession, obsession. In that stage, according to a theological definition published in 1906, the demon never makes him, the victim, lose consciousness, but nevertheless torments him in such a manner that his lit the demons in such a manner that his the demon's action is manifest. Scratchings and thumpings in Robbie's home back in Maryland would have been signs of the infestation stage. The scratches on Robbie's body, which Bishop had not yet seen for himself, indicated obsession. What had not yet appeared were indications of the third stage, actual possession, defined by the same 1906 source as a state produced when a demon makes the victim lose consciousness and then seems to play in his body the part of the soul he uses at least to all appearances his eyes to see with his ears to listen with his mouth to speak with it it is he the victim who suffers as if from a burn if his skin is touched with an object which has been blessed. Bishop had also brought a relic which he attached with a safety pin to a corner of the pillow on Robbie's bed. The cloth pouch contained a tiny bit of material enclosed in a small glass case with a fragment too old and infinitesimal to be really identified was a second class relic of St. Margaret Mary. A second class relic is a remnant of something reputedly touched by a saint, a shred of clothing, a silver of 
a sliver of wood, a first-class relic is from the saint's body. Usually, it is a chip of bone or a lock of hair. Jesuits were especially devoted to Saint Margaret Mary Alacoque, a 17th century French nun, because her spiritual advisor was a Jesuit. He encouraged her when against initial opposition within the church, she started what became worldwide devotions to the sacred heart of Jesus. In pinning her relic to Bobby's pillow, Bishop was invoking the intercession of a woman who had claimed to have experienced a moment of mystical union with Jesus. She said that Jesus had appeared before her, placed her heart inside his own, and made me see that mine was like a tiny atom which was consumed in that ardent furnace. Then he drew it out like a burning heart-shaped flame and put it back in the spot from which he had taken it. Catholic immigrants brought the practice of reverting the sacred heart. Practice of revering the sacred heart to the United States. Devotion focused on an image found in countless U.S. Catholic churches and homes. Jesus looking out from a painting or lithograph and revealing his flaming, bleeding heart wreathed in a crown of thorns. Undoubtedly, Bishop had grown up seeing that image in his own home. When it was time for Robbie to go to bed, the boy went upstairs. The boy went upstairs. A few minutes later, Bishop went into Robbie's bedroom and bid him good night. Bishop then returned to the first floor for a few more words with Robbie's parents and uncle and aunt before he would be driven.
that too. Suddenly, they all heard something. They stopped talking and listened. The noises, thumpings, bangings came from the second floor. Then Robbie screamed and they all rushed to the stairs. The Knights of the Priests, Chapter 6. At Robbie's bedroom door, the others stood aside for Father Bishop. Chapter 5. The Knights of the Priests At Robbie's bedroom door, the others stood aside for Father Bishop. He saw Robbie's mattress moving back and forth. Quote, the boy lay perfectly still, Bishop later reported, and did not exert any physical effort. The movement in one direction did not exceed more than three inches. The action was intermittent and completely subdued and completely subsided after a period of approximately 15 minutes. Close quote. Bishop took out the little bottle of holy water blessed in St. Ignatius' name and sprinkled it on the bed in the form of the sign of the cross. Quote, the movement ceased quite abruptly, Bishop wrote in the imperturbable third-person style, but began again when Father stepped out of the room. End quote. Robbie cried out, quote, a sharp pain seemed to have struck Robbie on his stomach as Bishop described it. Mrs. Mannheim rushed to the bed and pulled back the covers. She lifted Robbie's pajama top enough, quote, to show zigzag scratches in bold red lines 
on the boy's abdomen. Bishop precisely noted that during the 15 minutes the boy was not out of the view of six observers. Father Bishop Ravi's parents, uncle and aunt, and presumably, presumably, cousin Elizabeth. The mattress soon stopped shaking and everyone left the room. Robbie looked as if he were about to drop off to sleep. It was 15 minutes after 11. The next day, Thursday, March 10, Father Bishop began talking to a close friend, Father William S. Bodern, S.J. Robbie's cries echoed in Bishop's mind as he recounted what he had seen and heard. Bodern, puffing on the inevitable camel, listened intently. This was not some Jesuit discussion about the fine points of Augustinian theology. This was about a boy, a 13-year-old boy, in some kind of spiritual trouble, and Bodern was immediately interested. He spent far more time dealing with troubled people than with theology. Unlike the overwhelming majority of Jesuits in the community, Bodern did not teach. He was pastor of St. Francis Xavier Church, named after a 16th century Jesuit who was one of the six men in Ignatius' original society of Jesus. St. Francis Xavier Church was better known as Xavier or the College Church, although built and run primarily to serve the students and faculty of the university. Xavier was also a parish church that served the large Catholic community around the university. The church itself modeled after a cathedral in Ireland was built of native limestone trimmed with Bedford 
stone. It has a strong, imposing, gothic air with a great pillared nave and soaring fan vaulting. Architectural cities have called it a fine example of 19th century revival English Gothic. As Pastor Bodern answered to the rector of the university and to Archbishop Ritter, who, as ordinary of the archdiocese, was the superior of all priests in his jurisdiction, but in reality, Bodern had a great deal of autonomy. Though a member of the Jesuit community, he was not part of the university faculty, and he belonged more to his parishioners than to the Jesuit community. It was, it was said of him that he had not missed a wake in St. Louis for the past ten years. While Jesuits of the community lived in a communal house, lived in a communal house, and ate their meals at the rectory table, Bodern lived like any pastor in a rectory, in a rectory, a small wooden house nestled between the church and a Jesuit residence called Verhagen Hall. Bodern was the administrator of a busy church with a full schedule of baptisms, weddings, sick calls, funerals, and wakes. He was accessible to anyone who knocked on the rectory door, and he never seemed to tire of listening to the people who came to him with their fears and misdeeds. One or two new Jesuit priests were assigned to him as assistant pastors, usually for a few months at a time. They were young, had just been ordained, and 
were on their one-year Tertian ship, a respite of spiritual service before they get, before they got their first major academic or scholarly assignments. Bodern, 52, and a native of St. Louis, had joined the Society of Jesus at the age of 17 after completing high school at St. Louis University Academy, later called St. Louis University High School. He was short, stocky, black-haired, and square-jawed, with a reputation for cool, decisive action. He smoked camels incessantly. After ordination, he was made principal of the high school at St. Mary's College in Kansas, where he had taught during this during his scholastic years. He moved on to St. Louis University High School, where he became principal. He then was appointed rector of Campion Jesuit High in Prairie, Duchesne, Wisconsin. In 1942, he began a four-year tour as a U.S. Army chaplain, serving in both the European and China-Burma-Indian theaters. Soon after getting out of the Army in 1946, he became pastor of the college church. Bodern was a professed Jesuit, a distinction not readily understood outside the society. The process begins near the end of the period of philosophical training when Jesuit scholastics are given a grueling, comprehensive oral examination in Latin. Those who score higher than six out of ten are put in what was known as the long course. The others are assigned to the short course. Although both 
sets of scholastics study for the same length of time. The short and long indicate the intensity and depth of the course of study each has been assigned. A Jesuit who successfully passes the first oral examination and a later one in theology is professed, provided his moral character also is deemed to be sufficiently distinguished. He takes a fourth vow, obedience to the Pope. Several times in their history, the Jesuits have had problems with the Vatican. And this fourth vow is a gesture underlining Jesuit acceptance of papal authority. Professed Jesuits are qualified for posts of authority such as Father Provincial, the head of a province, or the president of a university. Usually, only professed Jesuits can teach philosophy and theology. Jesuits who? And that's all there is. Thank you for listening. The book is on sale for $9.95. It's about 315 pages. We covered 66 pages in the sample in the Play Store. I can't wait to get my copy. This is one of the best books I've read in a long time. It will read for you. You don't have to read it. 
Take care of yourself and stay informed. Stay well.